I'm super excited about what's going on in our church family, uh, audio notwithstanding. And so uh, this, if you have a bulletin, uh, on the third page, there is a uh, fourfold way that uh, several ministries are starting up in the next few weeks. So if you're a man, you just saw the video, one of the best things you might do is get involved in men's fraternity for the next eight months. Be looking at biblical masculinity. It's the best thing you can do for your life, for your Christian walk, for your family, for your children. Moms, uh, you heard it also from uh, zero to sixth grade. Some of you are desperate for community. This is a place that you can find community. Also, we have grief share and divorce care. And so uh, some of you are still battling (coughs) some sadness and loneliness, um, trauma from divorce. The same goes with grief share. And so we have just a great pack of leaders. uh, Chris Bowers, Rob Groff, and Men's Fraternity, Moms to Mom, uh, Jessica Dunn, and Barrett, Brandy Conniff, uh, who else? Uh, Sandy Bantz for the Grease Share group. We have Susan Thompson, Bob Walters, uh, Marisa Mayo, also Divorce Care, um, Bill Rylander, Marisa Mayo, Susan Thompson. Just a great group of leaders to really shepherd you as you step in to health and community in really neat ways. The second announcement... Um, there it will be, starting next week, a church-wide study. That means that this week, starting on Wednesday, you would have it today, ergo a copy malfunction. We have two resources for you. First is a, a, a six-lesson study guide for individuals or group. Sabbath as resistance. One of the quotes on the front page says, because we do not rest... We lose our way. Is that true for you? Is that true for many? So that's a, a join a life group. How can you do that? Well, there's four new life groups forming. There's lots of places to be involved. There's also going to be, <clears throat> starting next week, uh, a pastor-led, team-led in the chapel right after this service. And so if you say, I just want to jump in for this six weeks to Sabbath as resistance. We'll be in the chapel for Christian Education Hour. Also, on the front of the bulletin, uh, I'm going to be leading a group, uh, The Way Apprenticeship with Jesus. So this starts uh, Thursday at 6 o'clock on September 14th. You have to sign up. We eat together. uh, Have a great time together. We'll be this first six weeks also. Sabbath as resistance. So there's this. This is completely uh, standalone. You will learn a ton from just the study guide. If you uh, or you're involved in a group or you like to read, I've collated like the best of the best. So you're like, hey, I don't have time to read like eight books on the Sabbath, but I know someone who did. But And so I've given like one chapter a week, so like 15 pages a week for six weeks. Very manageable way to, to read John Mark Comer and Walter Brueggemann and Ruth Haley Barton, some great authors, a great way to be more deeply 
invited into this spiritual practice that's often been forgotten. Sound good? Is that hitting you with like way too much on a Sunday morning early? You're like, that's way too much. Well, today, second of like a small two-part series, and I said last week, hey, uh, this is something new that I'm going to try, and some of you will be like, hey, don't do that again. Or like, hey, that's okay. You can do that again. So the idea is to look at uh, one of the themes of Scripture, to trace it out from a, as a storyline overarching meta-theme of Scripture. Sometimes we look at Scripture as just sort of these dislocated uh, little stories, some of which have a moral. That's actually not the best way to read the Scripture. There's a redemptive arc. There's a storyline that goes from Genesis to Revelation. And so here we go today. I want you to pray with me before we begin. <clears throat> Father, thanks for our church. Thanks for these life group leaders that we've commissioned. Lord, thanks for the ministries and the leaders that work hard to shepherd hearts into places of wholeness and healing and community. Father, we resist community. Some of us are still resisting community from COVID. It's our relational muscles have atrophied. Lord, won't you bend us back into community? Won't you open our hearts to one another? Lord, open our hearts to you, Lord. Pray for my own voice today, Lord, that you would be honored and do uh, the miracle that is uh, the preaching task, that they would hear a way better message than the one they're about to hear because they're listening to the pulpit above. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <clears throat> Here we go. Ready or not, my voice. It was Nobel Prize winner and American author John Steinbeck in 1952 penned what he considered his magnum opus. The title? East of Eden. The title actually comes from Genesis chapter 4, verse 16 in the King James Version of the Bible, no less. It says like this, And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And so east of Eden becomes this metaphor about the human condition. East of Eden is a story of human depravity, of self-destruction, Violence and deception, shame and guilt, and deep relational alienation. Steinbeck was only channeling, after all, what all the great secular thinkers of the last 200 years have told us about the human condition. That deep alienation defines what it means to be human. Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology, said the most important alienation that we experience is psychological in nature. That we are at odds with our own self. That we are at odds with our psyche. Karl Marx said that the primary alienation is what? Economic. Alienation between the classes. That we are at odds with the economic system. Albert Camus, a French novelist and essayist and philosopher, said the underlying alienation that we all experience as a human condition is existential. That at the end of the day, we are at odds with our own existence. 
Another French philosopher, Emile Durkheim, sometimes referred to as the sort of the father of modern psychology, said the basic alienation we experience as social beings is sociological in nature. Now, that we are at odds with other humans. So do you get what all the great thinkers supposedly have said over the last 200 years? We're at odds with our psyche. We're at odds with the economic system. We're at odds with our existence. We're at odds with other humans. And we as Christians want to say, well, what does the Bible say? Well, first, the Bible pretty much just affirms all that alienation, but then it locates it within the biblical framework. And here's where we're going to go this morning. Genesis chapter 3, if you want to turn there. Genesis chapter 3. What happened in Genesis chapter 3? This is a already, by chapter 3, a pivotal point in the Bible. Pivotal point in human history. This is the fall of Adam and Eve. And we're going to pick it up in verse 7-24. through 24, And I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm going to read a little verse at the end. But I'm going to note for you, as I went through the passage, all the things that happened to humankind at the fall. Let me list a few, just a few for you. Number one, Adam and Eve realized that they were naked. They were alienated in their shame. They hid from the presence of God. And so we understand that we're alienated not only you know, in our shame, but we're alienated from God. Adam and Eve, they, they played the blame game. They're alienated relationally. There's enmity with the devil. Alienation with cosmic evil and the cosmic forces of evil in our universe. Women, pain in childbearing. Alienated biologically from our own cells, from our own biology. Also, a beautiful vocation work the garden, have joy doing so, becomes after the fall a sweaty job necessary for mere survival. So we're alienated vocationally. So you get where we're going? Alienated in our shame. Alienated from God. Alienated relationally, horizontally. Alienated with cosmic evil. Alienated biologically. Alienated vocationally. These are all the ways that we are being exiled already by Genesis 3. And maybe the last one is the most sad one. Adam and Eve, they lost their home in the garden. They lost their home in the garden. In a sense, we are now alienated, each and every one of us, from home. So let me read the last verse there. Verse 23 of Genesis 3. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And so the human condition, how can we summarize it? Well, we live, we abide, we dwell east of Eden. Never fully belonging. Never fully satisfied. Never satisfied relationally, existentially, vocationally. It's a condition the Bible calls exile. The Bible Project puts it like this, the whole story of the Bible is designed to address exile. But the Bible also goes one step further, a few steps further than, than Marx and Freud, further than Camus and Durkheim. It says the reason for all those various alienations is actually spiritual and theological. 
Because you have a fragmented and alienated relationship with the God who created you. That's the fountain of all the other alienations. That's the source, as in the river, from which all the the tributaries flow that you have been alienated from the God who created you. And so you and I, we don't have to be philosophers to recognize a human condition. What happens? I get married. I think this is going to be great. A lifetime of joy and intimacy. After all, I chose this person. This person chose me. And yet even the marriage doesn't fully satisfy your deepest longings. So I go on a vacation. I eat great meals. I, eat, eat, I see great sights. And yet I'm not fully satisfied even then. And so I get a vocation. I choose it. In traditional society, I would have done simply what my father did. But no, in our society, we get to choose our work and still my chosen vocation. What does it produce? It leaves me exhausted and frustrated on many, many occasions. Exile is the pursuit of joy without God at the center. What does it mean to be exiled? Exile is the pursuit of joy without God at the center. So the first 11 chapters of the human condition in Genesis chapter, chapters 1-11 through winds down how and where. Chapters, the first 11 chapters of the Bible, how do they wind up? The Tower of Babel. With humans trying to make a name for themselves. And it only produces more alienation of languages and cultures, thus producing the possibility of endless exiles on this planet. Nevertheless, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, a sliver of hope might be detected. A promise of homecoming. God does something. God acts. God covers sin and shame and guilt with His love and grace. What happens? Sacrifice is made. They're in the midst of a very, very dark day. One of the darkest days of human history. They're in the midst of guilt and shame and exile. A sacrifice is made. Genesis 3, verse 21. Look at it there. The Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. An animal is given. Adam and Eve, in their disgrace, are clothed by God. Something had to die for that to happen. There's a, so there's a substitute right in the middle of the story of the fall. There's a token of grace in the midst of shame, in the midst of guilt. What's more? Well, in the ancient Near East, sonship and inheritance was intimately connected to the giving of what? To the giving of a garment. Wealth was actually placed in the ancient Near East when traveling in the hem of the garment. Uh, this is, might be a news, a news story for you, but there was no credit cards in the ancient Near East, right? So if you failed to pay in the ancient Near East, what happened to you? They literally took their, your, their, your shirt off your back. The garment was connected to inheritance. And so with all due apologies to Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat, some scholars think that Joseph's coat of many colors is actually better translated a coat of long hem. So Joseph's brothers are not mad. 
because he has a very colorful coat while they have very drab and blah coats. Hey, I hate my gray coat. I want a multicolored coat like Joseph. No. They're jealous that Israel, Joseph's father, had given him a sizable inheritance. They want to kill Joseph to redivide the inheritance. In the book of Judges, Samson promises these wily Philistines 30 linen garments. Do you remember the reaction? You're like, oh, I know Judges 13 through 16, like the back of my hand. Well, let me tell you. They said, did you invite us to this wedding to rob us? To disinherit us? He was going to take their garments, this symbol of inheritance and sonship. Deuteronomy 24, 17, it says like this, you shall not take a widow's garment and pledge. And so if you're just reading Deuteronomy, you're like, well, that's weird. Can't she just find another dress? There's more to it. This is all about protecting a widow's inheritance rights. The Apostle Paul picks up this language and metaphor in Galatians chapter 3. He says it like this, verse 18. He starts talking about what? For if the inheritance comes by the law, no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Drop down to verse 25. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. What's a guardian? Well, it waits until the inheritance arrives. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized in Christ Jesus have put on Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. What? Heirs. According to the promise. Paul says in Romans 13.14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is garment sort of language. He's your inheritance. He's your righteousness. Through faith, you get the inheritance. Christ's righteousness is your garment and your clothing. And so even in anticipatory form in Genesis 3, God is saying something like this, you have sinned. You can't live in my garden temple, the Holy of Holies, with that kind of sin. But that doesn't mean I'm going to disinherit you. That doesn't mean I won't show you grace. That doesn't mean I don't want to adopt you as son and daughter in my family. A sacrifice is made. God clothes Adam and Eve. A token of grace in the midst of a very, very dark day. There's a promise made that one day there will be a homecoming. Well, fast forward a few years. What happens to Israel? They're exiled to Egypt. But Moses <clears throat> remembers the promise given to Abraham of, of the promised land. So this is a promise of what? Of homecoming, even in the midst of exile. But what has to happen first? Sacrifice has to be made. The tenth plague. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. But whoever takes the lamb without blemish, takes some of the blood and put it on the doorposts. This is a Passover lamb who will take away death even as the judgment of God <coughs> falls upon human sin. Can you give me some water? A sacrifice is made. And so Israel begins her journey home to the promised land. How? Token of grace and mercy on a very dark day. A sacrifice is made. 
Is this coming into focus at all when we go to the New Testament? Wait, fast forward a few years. Israel is now in the promised land. Israel has even built the temple. Now what happens? Israel sins. Indifference to the poor. Lack of justice. Alienated in worship. Idolatry is running rampant. So is the alienation relational and creational and vocational? Yes. But there's more than that. There is a spiritual and theological alienation from God right at the heart of Israel's idolatry. Just like in the garden, this is theological and spiritual. The alienation is lived out by all of us. It's the human condition. So what happens to Israel? Does she stay cozy for all her history in the promised land? No. Exile. Syrians tack the the northern ten tribes. uh, The two southern tribes, including Jerusalem, is burned to the ground in 586 B.C. And so what does God do to ultimately deal with the exile? Well, about 600 years later, He sends a son. What happens then? The sacrifice is given on a very dark day in Jerusalem on Golgotha. Token of grace and mercy in the midst of alienation and exile. A homecoming for an exiled people. And you say, well, pastor, I got, I got, I'm going to stump you because I know my Bible. What about the Ezra and Nehemiah generations? Didn't they come back and build the wall and build the temple? Here's a question for you. Did the glory of God come back? Did the glory of God come back like it did on the tabernacle, like it did when the temple was finished? Quick summary, no, it did not. And so they were waiting for the glory of God to come back. What does John 1 say? Well, I can, I know you're, I know you, you're like, I have the whole chapter memorized. I don't know how much you want, Pastor. Right? Like the glory of God came in Jesus, right? Who tabernacled and dwelled among us. And Jesus actually has told a story about exile as well. The parable of the prodigal son. Now, all your life, you've probably taken it personally and individually, which is just fine and dandy. But I want to ask a parable about a son who goes into exile. Hmm, that's very interesting. Who was the Son. Who was always called God's Son in the Old Testament? One answer and one answer only. His beloved people Israel. And so Jesus is talking about a Son who goes into exile. In exile, Israel is forced to dwell with unclean people eating unclean things. Jesus says in the parable, the Son was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. This is deep alienation for the, for the people of God. Alienated from the homeland. Alienated from the sacrificial system. Alienated from worship at the temple. What does God do? Prodigal Father clothes the Son with what? Doesn't He clothe them with a garment? Bring quickly the best robe, the best garment. Well, you say, I thought He already took His garment. The prodigal son already took his inheritance, already squandered his wealth in wild living. No matter. God wants to celebrate this homecoming from exile. He longs for the prodigal sons and daughters to come home. He longs for His people to come home. 
Bring the fattened calf and kill it. For the son of mine was lost and is found, was dead and is alive again. Clothing the son with a garment of sonship and inheritance. Kill the fattened calf. Something had to die for this homecoming to be fully accomplished. Earlier in the book of John, it says, look at Jesus, John the Baptist would say, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Takes away the alienation and then exile of the human condition. A sacrifice is given. Grace is extended. So exiles like you and me can come home to God. And yet you say, hey, what, doesn't First Peter say something that we're, we're still exiles? That part of the human condition still is that we're longing for home? First Peter 2, verse 11, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against your soul. And so this is what we understand as the, the human condition now, even as Christians. This is your identity. You're always going to be longing for home. You're always going to live life with like a rock in your shoe. It just doesn't feel and fit right. Something's always off. Alienation and exile is part of the human experience. Hebrews chapter 11, even in this great faith chapter, what does the writer say? Verse 13 and 14. It says, These all died in faith, all these Old Testament saints, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Two last thoughts by way of application. First, the Bible says alienation and exile are deeply woven into the human condition. Friends, this fundamentally goes completely against the secular mindset. The secular mindset says something like this, just get the right politician, the right government, and all will be well. Just wait until next year. Just get the right spouse. Then you can enjoy life. Just find the right friends. Go on the right vacations. Get the right accomplishments and achievements. Do the right therapy or the right self-talk. This is going to make all the difference in your life. What the Bible says is that all those various forms of alienation, alienation and marriage, relational, creational, vocational alienations, they all stem from one primary alienation, your alienation with God. And so if you want to feel like you're at home, repair the relationship with God. Receive His grace. Receive His mercy. Receive His sacrifice. Receive being a son or a daughter. In trauma care, there is a great line that I've heard something like this, what is not repaired is repeated. Trauma. Going through something. Some of you have been through trauma. What is not repaired is repeated. So the application is, if you don't repair the relationship with God, all these other alienations will be deeper, harder, darker, more severe. So the application is really a question for you in the sense of this, do you really believe in the Bible? That you are primarily and fundamentally 
alienated and exiled from God. What is not repaired is repeated. Can you go to God and repair the relationship with Him and let that source flow down to all your other alienations that exist in life? Here you are. Here I am you know, tinkering around the, the secondary or tertiary alienations. Go to the source. Second application. My wife Lisa. All my best illustrations have to do with Lisa. Well, she goes every morning about 6.30 to 7.30. She has her chair outside. She takes her Bible. She takes her prayer book. She takes her journal. And she spends about an hour with the Lord. I remember a couple months ago, she came in and maybe we're just having a hard day. Uh, Those happen. They happen for us. They happen for you. And I remember her saying something like this. I just wish that the whole rest of the day could have just been like the first hour with the Lord in His presence, hearing His Word. Why do you get a prayer life? Why do you spend time in worship? Why do you spend time in God's presence with the people of God? Why do you fight hard to form community and encourage one another and pray with one another and show hospitality to one another? Friends, these are all experiences of home. These are all experiences of homecoming. And in this world, you can't stay there, but you can certainly visit. You can't stay at home in this fallen world. Genesis 3 runs right down, smack down the center of your life. But boy, can you visit So people of God, fight for prayer. Fight for your daily worship. Fight for community. Fight for being in the presence of God. These are all ways of sort of lifting the exile. Lifting the alienation that you experience, that I experience day in and day out. These are all glimpses of home. Sacrifice has been made. Grace has been extended. On a very dark, dark day, God finds us in grace and in mercy. And so what is our job? Visit home as much as you can. God the Father is sort of like your, you know, your, your, your grandma or maybe your father or mother. Anybody have a parent that says, you never call. They just want you to visit home. They remember you being at home probably fondly. Well, some of you finally. You can't stay there, but you can certainly visit. This is the storyline of Scripture, our exile, but God's longing to bring us home. Let's pray. Father, we're about to embrace another way that we come home as we go to the table. Sacrifice was given on a very dark day. And Lord, we at this table receive grace and we receive mercy. And so this is a foretaste of home, being in Your presence, praying with the people of God, communing with You and with one another as we take the bread and as we take the cup. Lord, call us home. 
It's like my wife said, why, why, why can't we just linger there? We just want to be home. And yet, before our home, ultimate homecoming, Lord, help us as a people of God to visit home often, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.